And we're back here at the So We Speak podcast, and we've got our regular crew back. Thanks to Ben Williams the last couple of weeks for joining us. Enjoyed those conversations thoroughly. But I'm back here with Terry Fakes. And this morning, we want to talk about the Bible. And this is a topic I feel like we keep coming back to both in the podcast and on conversations that we have. I know it's something that I've returned to a lot on the blog. Um, For those of you that are Patreon subscribers, a couple of weeks ago, did a little miniature summary and bibliography on some new books that are dealing with the scriptures. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because the scriptures are normative for everything that we do as Christians. But then two, they're involved in every single argument that we have over right and wrong, over comparative religions, over intramural arguments about religion, which I think is probably the the one that's um, stoking a lot of the conversations right now. Well, I think, uh, too, when you talk about disagreements over, say, social issues or moral issues from a Christian perspective, if you go back upstream from those arguments, I'm seeing more and more that what you're really dealing with is a difference in understanding the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. And it doesn't do a lot of good to argue far downstream when you have a more fundamental division before that. That's why I think this topic is becoming bigger and bigger. I would agree with that. I think that you can almost predict someone's doctrine, engagement with culture, view of the of the church, you know, a lot of what a person is going to believe in their faith if you know what they think about the scriptures. Right. And what's interesting is, so a hundred years ago, you have a big divide in the American church over the fundamentalism and modernism controversy, which was essentially about the Bible. Now, there were a lot of other manifestations, the social gospel, the engagement of society, the new way of preaching that you saw in a lot of the modernist churches. But ultimately, in light of arguing about things like evolution and Christians' role in society, what you're actually arguing about is how to interpret the Bible. So you get fundamentalism, which comes out of that controversy, being the group of people who have clung to the Bible, have clung to a high authority and inspiration of scripture versus the modernists who become the modern liberal church. And so when we use the terms liberal and conservative in the church, we don't mean politically liberal, politically conservative. Right. What we typically mean is what kind of view of scripture do you have? If you are liberal theologically, most of the time you have a low view of the inspiration authority of scripture. If you're conservative, most of the time you have a high view of the authority and inspiration of scripture. What's interesting today is among what what we consider the broad evangelical community is we're having that discussion all over again. And we have a little bit of a fundamentalist modernist debate going on within the evangelical church. Probably the most clear way we've seen this is over the debates over homosexuality. A lot of the dialogue around that topic comes down to how are we going to view the scripture as regulatory, the norm for what we believe doctrinally in the church. And we've talked about this before. You have several camps on all these issues. First, you got to decide whether or not you care about what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Second of all, once you figure out what the Bible says, you've got to figure out whether or not it is authoritative and normative for the discussion that you're having. And in what way? I mean, that's where I think most of the folks involved in those debate, and I say most, would say that they believe the Bible is inspired, uh, 
But their idea of what that means, and I know that's what we want to get to here, is very different. There are different points of view. For example, and I know we'll talk about this, how much of the New Testament is culturally situated how much of it is transcultural in its application. So you might have two different people who both say, oh, I think the Bible's inspired and it's the Word of God, but I think a lot of it doesn't apply anymore because it's purely culturally situated in the first century. Mm -hmm. So it gets a little confusing, and that's why we thought we might talk about this. So maybe kick off with the idea of inspiration and some of the camps of what does that mean? Yeah, we want to be clear about what is kind of going on under the surface when we say something like, inspiration, something like the Bible is authoritative, something like inerrancy. So let's take a few minutes and just discuss those terms. And I think all doctrine of the Bible begins with the doctrine of inspiration. The the fact that we're even having a conversation about the Bible, like if you step back and you ask kind of a meta question, why discuss the Bible anyway? The answer is because we're convinced that in some way or another, the Bible is the inspired word of God. So you go to the Bible to learn about the Bible. You go to the Bible to learn about inspiration. And so you have verses like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that say, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. So what does Paul mean there when he says breathed out by God? The theme in the Bible generally of God's voice begins at creation. Right. God speaks and he creates the universe. It's not a coincidence that the method that God uses to create is through his word. And if you take the theme of God's word and you trace it through the entire Bible, what you see is the word of God is authoritative. The word of God is creative. The word of God is regenerational. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is active. And you get this sense that the major force in the universe, the way that God accomplishes his will in the world is through his word. First in speaking into creation, speaking through the prophets, speaking through his son, Jesus Christ, and for us, the way we receive his word through the Bible. So to put it, basically what we mean when we say inspiration is God spoken, God breathed. Why is the Bible inspired? Because we believe it's the word of God. So from there, you have to ask the question, okay, how is it the Word of God, though, if it was written by 20, 30 some odd people over the span of Mm -hmm. 1,500 years in three different languages across multiple different cultures? How can you say that a compendium of books like the Bible, which is really a miniature library of books, is all the Word of God? And a question that we'll get to down the road is, are they all equally the Word of God? Right. You know, just before you go on from that, one of the things, uh, two, two interesting thoughts. Number one, when I took Hebrew, my instructor said, gentlemen, you are about to learn the language that God spoke. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which got our attention. But in Jewish thinking, historically and still today amongst Orthodox Jews, is that not only is the what we call the Old Testament, not only do they believe that that is the message that God transmitted, they believe the actual words themselves have power. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean in a Harry Potter kind of a sense. Mm -hmm. They believe that the actual words themselves convey the power of God, not just the message of God. We don't feel that way about the New Testament in quite the way they do, but I think they are onto something there that this isn't just 
a collection of words that somewhere in there is buried a message from God for us. Right. That's a big distinction that is important to keep in mind is when we talk about the Word of God, the Bible being the Word of God, a common thing to say is that the the Bible contains the Word of God. Now, I'm not saying that every person that says that means to denigrate portions of Scripture, but, right. it, but it is worth pointing out one of the errors, I think, that's most common in the church when it comes to inspiration is selectively taking certain portions of the Bible as inspired and leaving out others. And so if you think that the Bible contains the Word of God, then right off the bat, you have to figure out which parts of it are the Word of God and which ones are not. Or which parts are mostly the Word of God and which ones have a little bit of intermingling between you know, human thought and, 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 and Word. Does that get down to kind of the difference or one of the simple ways to think about inerrancy versus infallibility? Would you maybe talk about those two terms a little bit? So if you believe that the Bible is inspired, you believe every word is the word of God, then that has a significant bearing on what you think the Bible is like. So before I get there, I just want to mention there are different ways to view the Bible being inspired. And so one of those ways would be God, you know, moving the pen or whispering in the ear of the author and them writing down every single word that God says. And the problem with that, I mean, the good thing is, obviously, it's a very easy way to transmit the words of God onto the page. The problem is when you read the Bible, and especially if you read it in its original languages, that's not the way the Bible reads. It reads like it has different authors. Right. For example, the grammar in the book of Revelation, probably understandably so, if I were seeing the things in Revelation, my grammar wouldn't be great either, is far less educated, far less precise than when you're reading something like Luke or Acts or even the book of Hebrews. You know, one of the reasons that you notice the different kinds of voices in the Bible is through the way that they talk about things. Right. It would be like listening to somebody you know uh, say something to you and listening to somebody else paraphrase what that person said. They could say the same thing but they would have a little bit different slant on it. They have different colloquialisms. They have a different way of speaking. That's how the New Testament reads. And right. so there's a human element in the inspiration process. And so what most people believe, if you have a high view of inspiration, isn't that God dictated the entire Bible in the vernacular or style of the individual authors, but that God inspired the authors as they were writing to write in their own voice, with their own style, and the way that they would explain something, but so that every single word that he intended would end up in the Bible. Exactly. I think that is a very high view of Scripture, and it connects with what we know about Scripture. For example, I am not that impressed with a God who can turn someone into a robot and make them write what he wants to write. Well, okay, I'm a little bit impressed with that. But that's not terribly impressive. What's impressive is that God allows a certain element of humanness or will or whatever you want to call it, and it interacts with his sovereignty in such a way that without overriding your personality and turning you into a robot, the exact words God wants said are said. It's very much like that interaction with, say, Pharaoh in the Old Testament and God's sovereign will being accomplished even in the midst of a bunch of people running around not following his will. That's a pattern through the Bible. Is God's sovereignty interacting with some element of human will and yet 
God's will is done. To me, that's a very high view of inspiration. I agree. I think one of the most potent theological concepts that, that you get from reading the Bible is what we would call the divine, the divine preference for human agency. Right. So obviously God could do whatever he wanted. He could snap his fingers and could have done the whole gospel story right when Adam and Eve left the garden if he wanted to. And sometimes we wonder why didn't he do that? Right. But obviously he knew a better way. And what he demonstrates over and over is that he has this preference for using human beings to accomplish his will. Well, why should we expect that that's any different with the conveyance of his word? Right. So when he sends the prophets into the court of the king in the Old Testament. He tells the prophet what to say, and then the prophet goes and says, thus saith the Lord. Well, why didn't he just say it? Why not just thunder down into the throne room of the king? Well, to some extent, we don't know why Mm -hmm. he didn't do that. I mean, it makes sense to me to -hmm. do that. But for some reason, and you see this in, in so many doctrines in the Bible, God apparently has a preference for human agency. Exactly. He wants to use human beings. And so when we look at the doctrine of inspiration, it appears that that's what he was doing. Right. Using human beings, like you said, in a in a really mind-blowing vision of sovereignty, that he could use human beings to accomplish exactly what he wanted to happen in the way that they actually did it in mm-hmm. history. There's another version of inspiration, and this is where you and this is where it's hard to put a you know a nice line around this but if you go any further beyond what we would call plenary inspiration which means that God communicated through human beings with their own style the text of the bible if you go anywhere beyond that you get versions of inspiration that essentially revolve around people saying things that happen to be true and the transmission history of the bible capturing God's word And like I said, there are some people who believe that that functionally have a very high view of Scripture. There are also people who believe that, that believe that the Bible is essentially a bunch of campfire tales that have been told and passed down over history, and they're not any more valuable than Aesop's fables. Right. So there's a lot to work with in there. So I don't want to pretend like there's one view that kind of encapsulates what we would consider a infallibility view, which we'll talk about in a minute, Uh all the way over to a liberal view of Scripture you know, you don't really think that it has much of God's word in it, but it contains the truth of God's word. That's a broad spectrum. But, but I want to talk about that for a second. Part of what we believe about inspiration is looking backwards now that we're in the church and we have the Bible. Uh-huh. And I want to talk here in a minute about what we can learn about the Bible from the Bible. Because I think the authors of Scripture tell us some important things about the Bible. But there's also some things that we can learn. <laughs> Bless you. There's also a few things that we can learn by looking at the fact that we have the Bible now. One of the things that one of my big takeaways from seminary when I was in my MDiv and we're in a class on Paul, one of the things you discover is Paul wrote several things that we don't have. So, for example, there's at least one or two other letters to the Corinthians that Mm -hmm. we don't have. There's a letter to the Laodiceans that we don't have, which might be the book of Ephesians. You don't know. But there are several other letters. And then there's the fact that of the ones that we have mentioned in the New Testament, there's a whole period of Paul's ministry where we don't have anything. We don't have a reference, but it would be hard to believe he wasn't writing any letters then. We don't have any of those. So the question comes, why don't we have the real 
Second Corinthians, mm-hmm. because there's obviously a letter between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. What we have is actually Third Corinthians or Fourth Corinthians. <laughs> right. Why don't we have that letter? Well, that's a pretty easy question. If you have a high view of Scripture, then if God wanted us to have that letter, He would have given us that letter. Right. If 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 God intended that we would have some things that are not in the Bible, you would think that he would be able to have gotten that included in the canon of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So part of what we know about the Bible is the fact that we have the Bible the way that it is. Right. Is that God preserved it. He you know, watched over his word. The things that didn't need to be in there didn't get in there. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to think through when we start talking about inspiration and authority is Paul wasn't inspired every time he spoke. Right. Paul said some false things. Right. But none of the things that he said that are in the Bible are false. Right. So he never reported false information, false doctrine, anything like that in the 13 letters that we have. But by nature of being human, he said some things that were wrong elsewhere. Did some things that were wrong, wrote some things that were wrong. But those are not the things that were in the Bible. And that becomes a tricky question when it comes to inspiration. But the fundamental commitment we do have is because God has preserved the Bible the way that he did, we can be confident that the Bible is a representative uh, uh, canon of authority from God. So we don't really have to doubt throughout history, what if the church made a mistake about the Bible? Because it only makes sense to think that if God intended us to have something, he would be able to orchestrate things so that we would have it. Right. So I think that's probably good as an intro to inspiration because inspiration really for our purposes is a a gateway to get into what we think about the Bible now and how it should be used. And that could be kind of divided into two categories, inerrancy and infallibility. Typically what we mean by inerrancy is that the Bible is true in everything that it speaks to. So whether that's making a historical claim when it makes historical claims, making theological claims when it makes theological claims, whatever it says is true. There is no error. There are no falsities. Given the uh, literary structure, the genre, the intention of the authors, the Bible does not say anything false. Infallibility is a slightly lesser claim than inerrancy. Some people use these two interchangeably, but but there's a distinction between the two. If, If inerrancy is the Bible is true in everything that it speaks to, Infallibility is typically defined as the Bible is true in matters of salvation and spiritual right. truths. Is that what you would? Is that how you faith would define and practice? It? Is how I hear that a lot. It contains everything that we need for our faith and practice for our salvation, which is a slightly different thing to affirm. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's an easier thing to affirm. And we can talk about maybe why you would be driven to say the Bible is infallible instead of inerrant. But the basic distinction is the core of what it means to be a Christian, the core of what it means to live the Christian mm-hmm. life is true under infallibility or inerrancy, right. where inerrancy goes beyond that is to say every single thing that the Bible reports is true. Right. So that's a pretty big divide in, in the church. Mm-hmm. And you can usually tell when you go on somebody's website or when you go to a group of, of churches or a group of pastors or a blog site or something like that, if they have a statement of belief, when you go to Scripture, which is usually the first thing, which is kind of interesting in and of itself, if they use the word inerrancy, they're probably very conservative. 
Right. If they use the word infallibility, you really don't know. Right. You really don't know what they are. You're going to have to going to have to wait and see. Um, so if inspiration is the kind of beginning of the doctrine of the Bible and inerrancy and infallibility are kind of the middle, then the third part would be the authority of Scripture. And this is where I think the rubber really hits the road. I think this is where probably a lot of what we want to talk about practically comes in. What do we mean when we say the Bible is authoritative? There are, as you would guess, a lot of different views on what that means. And typically it does root itself in this idea of how you think God communicated with people and to what extent. Infallibility inevitably involves a little bit of sorting and sifting. Inerrancy is opposed to the idea of sorting and sifting. And so you're going to see a lot of gradations. But let me give you just throw out a couple of examples of ways people can understand the Bible to be authoritative. And if you hold an inerrancy position, you will typically say everything that it says is true for all time and all cultures and circumstances. In other words, it basically is a book that is God speaking to his people throughout all of time. Some want to see that as of kind of a verbal plenary inspiration. Thus says the Lord, and this is the way it is. Others, N.T. Wright is probably one of the uh, proponents of this kind of a view, is that he wants to understand the scripture as authoritative in the way that a story is authoritative rather than the way in the way that uh, the manual for your car is authoritative. Mm-hmm. And so he will, you know, I'm going to just kind of move along the spectrum a little bit. He will say, this is a controlling story. He doesn't, he doesn't mean it's a made-up story. It's not true. That's not what he's saying. He simply said it's authoritative in the sense of being a story. In other words, you take this story. One of his famous analogies is this. Pretend that the Bible is a novel for a moment, and you read the whole novel, and you get to know the characters, and you get to know how they act, and you get to know the plot, and you get to know what's going on, and you get to the end, and someone has torn out the last chapter. So you don't really know how the story ends. Well, you're actually not free to make up your own ending. Well, the ending has to be consistent with the characters and who they are and how they act and what they did. And so I'm not arguing for this. I just want to put a steel man up here and say, N.T. Wright would say, that's what the New Testament is to us. Now go live in accordance with what has been written in every chapter up till now. And so he does see it as authoritative, but in a slightly different way. Let me take one more step, and then you can just start comparing and contrasting these. Let me go to Peter Enns, for example. Peter Enns understands the Bible as authoritative in a much less way than N.T. Wright or the uh, inerrancy position. He understands it as being a product that is not unique. For example, the Genesis story probably looks a little bit like some ancient Near Eastern flood stories, creation stories, and so it's just another one of those. And he will understand it in that way. It's not a unique document. It's primarily a human document. But inside there somewhere is human experience and processing of God. And so it's authoritative in the sense that 
uh, and really we might even have, I would hesitate to even use that word authoritative, but it's authoritative in the Mm -hmm. sense that it is the accumulated experience of how people have interacted with God. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a little bit of a spectrum, and shoot shoot at that or yeah. Jump I in think there. for for somebody like Peter Inns, I, I think if you asked him, he would say that he does think the Bible is authoritative. But I think he means authoritative in terms of the way that journalism is authoritative. Exactly, it's an accurate description to an extent of what happened. It's it's a record of people's experience with God. So I think that's a great spectrum. And, and what, what I think might be good is I we're probably both pretty solidly in the inerrancy camp. Uh-huh. And we may be at different places in the inerrancy camp, but we're probably in the inerrancy yes. camp. But what I'd like to do is say, what is the the strongest pro and con of the inerrancy camp and the infallibility camp, especially when it comes to the way that plays out in the authority of the Scripture? And I want to start with the strongest pro for the inerrancy camp. And, and the... the the general argument for inerrancy is if every word of the Bible is a revelation from God, if every word has the full weight of God's word, and God cannot lie, and God cannot be false, uh-huh. and God cannot change his mind, then every single word of the Bible must be true. Right. So the strongest case, I think, is what we've walked through thus far. Inspiration, inerrancy, authority. Right. It's rooted in the very character of God and what it means for him to speak that the Bible would be inerrant. And the strong point in that, there's this saying in the Reformation, I think it's norm normata non normanda, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But what that means is the Bible is the norming norm, which cannot be normed. So you hear a lot about sola scriptura. Right. And sola scriptura doesn't mean that the Bible is the only thing that is authoritative in any way in the Christian life. It means it is the most authoritative thing, and it cannot be presided over by any other authority. That means, you know, in the Reformation, it cannot be presided over by the edicts of a pope, of a fallible human being. Right. But for us today, probably what's even more important is it also cannot be presided over by individual personal experience, spiritual right. experience. So the, that the Bible is the norming norm that cannot be normed means we have to take the Bible's own terms, the Bible's own presentation, the Bible's own inner logic, and use it as an authoritative guide for the Christian life. So we, what we can't do is bring in secular categories of reading the Bible, of interpreting the Bible, of whatever. And we've talked about this you know, in a couple of the first episodes we did. How do you square secular leadership with the church? Well, you give the Bible priority, and within the framework of the Bible, you take the absolute best from the world that you can find. Right. But what you don't do is take what you think is best in the world and use that as a container for the Bible. The same is true with everything. We read the Bible on its own terms. We allow it to set the rules of the game. And then within those rules, we value things like church history, experience, you know, reason, all of those things are important, but they're subsidiary to the Bible. I think that's probably the biggest pro for the inerrancy position. I do too. And just to take that a little bit further, if you bring secular categories to the Bible, and people do, there's a difference in how you use those categories if you see it as inerrant and if you do not see it in quite that way. And let me give you an example. 
I think you and I both realize there are different genres in the Bible. My statement of that is simply let the Bible be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. And it always wants to glorify God, but the Psalms as poetry want to glorify God in a different way than the Gospels do in narrative. Mm-hmm. I understand that. That's, that's, very, that's, not, that's not hard to understand. But when we begin studying the different genres, we use different techniques from the secular world. Right now, you know, you have text criticism and redaction criticism and form criticism and source criticism and various techniques that are applied to documents in general. That can be used to deconstruct the Bible if you begin with the supremacy of those methods. But for us, we use those methods to further elucidate what the Scripture itself wants to say. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you. One of the keys is you begin with the assumption that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and every technique that you use helps it to more effectively speak what it wants to speak rather than forcing it into secular categories. Yeah, I would just go ahead and say this is probably, at, at least in part, the biggest con of the inerrancy position is the tendency to take every single piece of the Bible at face value without any consideration of context or genre. So a lot of the reason that people have heartburn with the inerrancy position is because there's been a lack of nuance in the way that the Bible's been read throughout recent history. Right. So if you take you know the, the holiness code in Leviticus and you just transplant that out and you say, this is just, you know, the inerrancy people say this is just as important as what Jesus says in the New Testament. So we should be stoning people and you can't get tattoos and you can't eat shellfish. Right. Well, that's a really naive way of reading the Bible, but it's a pretty prominent way in some circles, to think about the inerrancy position. Let me give you another example. Is Sometimes people quoting the book of Psalms, for example, as though it were a command. Mm-hmm. And when you stop and think about it, what you're saying might be true, but that's not what Psalms does. Psalms right. is conveying a message, but it is not conveying it through uh, commands. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. I, and I think that's a, just a way of not appreciating what the Bible actually is. Right. So you've got to do some legwork in the inerrancy camp to understand what the Bible's saying on its own terms. Exactly. Poetry is going to say things very differently than Paul's going to say them in an epistle. The narrative flow of the Gospels is going to be very different than Old Testament prophecy. The book of Daniel and the book of Deuteronomy are extremely different. And there's a lot of legwork that needs to be done to understand what are these authors trying to do? What is the Holy Spirit trying to say? say? Probably the biggest example would be the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, is trying to say something very inspired, very clear, but it's saying it in a way, a particular way that is chosen to say that. So in other words, if you're listening to us and you want to write a love letter to your girlfriend or to your spouse, you're going to write a whole lot more like Song of Solomon and Psalms. I would urge you not to write it like Leviticus. Right. In other revelation for that matter. We also understand that. We do. You know, here's a, a great example of what you're saying. I think one of the biggest cons of inerrancy is not actually inerrancy, but it's how we understand it. Bart Ehrman tells this story of how he came to basically lose faith, but he certainly lost his view of the scriptures. And when you read him now, you realize he he does not have any sense that you and I would call it of inspiration as we would traditionally understand it. He was in graduate school. He had been raised in a 
fundamental conservative, whatever, evangelical kind of a poem that everything the Bible said was true. It was literally true, et cetera, et cetera, with no nuance, no letting the Bible be what it wants to be. So he gets in school and he realizes he's, he's a Greek scholar and he's a good Greek scholar. His popular work doesn't reflect that, but he's a good Greek scholar when he wants to be scholarly. Mm-hmm. He basically wrote a paper and his professor, he couldn't figure out why a certain passage in Mark said what it said because he had a hard time harmonizing that. And his Professor wrote back on his paper, maybe Mark was wrong. And he said it hit him like a ton of bricks. And so his rigid view of the Bible, I would say it goes beyond inerrancy, it goes to a rigidity, was shattered by something that didn't have room in his, what I call maybe an ultra-inerrant position. I mean, you know, he's a, a fundamentalist. He's, position. And yeah. he's stayed a fundamentalist. He's just a fundamentalist of the opposite stripe Right now, he never really had a paradigm change from fundamentalist Christian Moody Bible Institute Wheaton College, and then at Princeton right. to now probably America's most famous agnostic. He is tearing down the Bible. He has the same view of Scripture. On one hand, he was convinced it was true. Now he thinks it's false. There's not a lot of nuance right. in either one of those positions. They're both extreme positions, and to me, that's one of the downsides of believing in inerrancy and that sense of inspiration without actually studying the Bible. Mm-hmm. In other words, you just get this caricature, if you will, of what inerrancy is. And that caricature won't stand up to the real world. I believe inerrancy will stand up, but I don't believe that caricature of it will. Absolutely. So if we're going to talk about infallibility, uh, let's talk about some strengths of the infallibilist position. Um, I want to throw out one. I think most people who would commit themselves to infallibility are trying to major in the majors. Right. They want to make sure that the Bible is not an unnecessary stumbling block to those who maybe would get caught up in a lack of nuance, in a lack of study. You know, you crack the Bible open for the first time, you see some things in there that you just absolutely don't agree with. I think where some of the people in the infallibilist camp are coming from is saying, don't worry about that. Let's worry about the most important thing. Right. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to trust Christ? What does it mean to live the Christian life? And if that's all you're after, there are some who would say, do you really need the inerrantist position? No. You just need to trust that the Bible gives us a sufficient set of data for what it means to trust in Christ and live the Christian life. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I agree with that. Basically, I think that well-intentioned people in that camp really do want to major in the majors. But I'm going to flip to the negative on this because I feel pretty strongly that I, too, would approach someone to share the good news of the gospel. I would not start in the book of Leviticus. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's absurd. I would start with this Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? What is the gospel? The death bearing our sins and the resurrection to confirm eternal life. I would start there as well. So I'm, we're, we're in track on that. We're in sync on that. For example, Andy Stanley's been criticized a lot in the media recently. The only reason I bring it up is I think people are probably aware of it. The idea, he's probably a great example of what you're saying. He wants to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And his basic argument is that, look, let's just talk about the resurrection. If some guy said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be resurrected, and then it happened, you ought to believe in him. That's good as far as it goes. Here's the negative side of infallibility, however. If you assume that all we are about is getting people to say, okay, I believe that guy, 
That's good enough. But that's not actually our mission. Our mission is to make disciples. And without more than that, and understanding the authority of the Bible in a more full, uh, full-bodied full way than that, we cannot accomplish our mission. So I think it leaves a lot of room for people to agree on that one thing and say, that's all you really have to know to be a Christian. I find that personally to be not only naive, but dangerous. That's it's very dangerous. Opinion. And it's becoming a more popular position. But I do think there is a good impulse that leads to that position. I, I think you and I agree, agree on this. I, I would share that impulse. And I don't know if I've told you this whole story yet, but so a couple of weeks ago I was on Twitter and I'm I'm tweeting back and forth. And, you know, people say nothing good ever comes from arguing on social media. But, the, but in this case, actually, it did. So I'm tweeting back and forth with a few people about Andy Stanley's doctrine of Scripture, which I think is just, as you, as you mentioned, not only naive, it's dangerous. And so as I'm tweeting back and forth, all of a sudden in the middle of the conversation, Andy Stanley follows me, like his actual account. Hundreds of thousands of followers. Now, it's probably an intern who's running his account. But anyway, I like to think it was him. Follows me in the middle of the afternoon. And in the middle of this conversation I'm having, he tweets at me and says, how about instead of reading my mind, you read my book. Follow me and I'll show you how to get one. So I follow him. And uh, he DMs me and and he sends me a free copy of the book. So it arrived a couple days later. So I, I have so sometimes good things do come out. Of some it. things, good things come out of arguing on Twitter. But anyway, sitting right here on my desk, I have his new book and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but as I've looked through it and as I've obviously listened to his sermons and you know, he does this about once a year right now, usually in the summer, he makes some crazy sounding statement about the Bible and then goes on, you know, whoever's podcast, Jonathan Merritt this time, or, you know, whatever magazine, relevant magazine, and then says, basically, people are taking him out of context. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was actually look at the context of what he said and see what he's after. And I will say, I, I think if you asked Andy Stanley, I mean, it, it, the last time he did this, if you asked him, he put out a thing that says he's an inerrantist. But he's obviously not an inerrantist. Mm-hmm. But he says he's an inerrantist. And I think he genuinely believes in the authority of the Bible. What I don't believe is that he's making the the best biblical move in terms of appropriating the scriptures. Like, I think right. the, the, the indictment I would make is not that he doesn't respect God. It's that he's not rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm-hmm. So if you look at what he's doing, what I, here's where I think this comes from. And I think this is where a lot of people fall into infallibility from the good side of things. You want to reach people with the gospel and people are troubled by certain things about the church. So that could be past experience with the church. That could be you know historical baggage that they have with the church. They could have grown up in a church that was really legalistic or you know whatever it was. And what you encounter is they have an eagerness to know Christ and they have zero eagerness to read the Bible. But you want them to know Christ. Right. Or they, they want to know Christ and then they start reading the Bible and they have all these questions that you don't really want to answer and you don't want to spend the time answering. You just want them to get on with their life following Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so you say something to the effect of, let's just focus on Jesus. Right. Let's just let G, you know, just focus on Jesus words and focus on the gospel, focus on the New Testament, whatever. And so then you come out and, and, and they point to something in Leviticus and you say something like Andy Stanley did, which was, well, the Old Testament is not normative for the Christian life. They, they, the way he put it, and I think this is actually less ignorant than it is devious. I mean, I think this is, this is maybe crossing the line here. 
He basically interprets the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to say that the disciples decided together that the Old Testament was no longer authoritative and no longer normative for anything about the Christian life. Right. My question for him is, where do you go from here? Mm -hmm. Because if you've already dismissed the Old Testament, and then you have your people reading the New Testament, there are some things in the New Testament they are not going to like. Paul's stance on sexuality, for example, is going to be a major stumbling block to people who have problems with the Old Testament. So at that point, what do you do? Do you dismiss Paul? That's what the liberals 100 years ago did. Right, and so it's not—it's not like you're just taking things out of context and saying, "Well, are you going to dismiss Paul?" I mean, that's a—that's an old trick in theology, is to say Paul was reinterpreting the words of Jesus in a way that isn't consistent with what Jesus would have said and done. So we distance ourselves from Paul. Well, then when you get to the words of Jesus, Jesus says some things in the Gospels that are that do not sit well. Right. And he says he's going to throw fire down on the earth. He's going to come back and judge the dead. I mean, the, the whole day of the Lord thing is pretty troubling. And so you do what scholars have done in this camp for a hundred years, which is you decide which of these sayings, though, are really Jesus's and which are kind of the ones that his disciples took and ran with. And you start doing things like denying the virgin birth and denying the resurrection. And, you know, the most famous proponent of this view, Rudolf Bultmann, thought he was doing a service to the church right? by bringing the Bible up to speed after the scientific revolution. right? And what's funny about Boltmann is people think that he's this you know diabolical figure out to destroy the church. He wasn't. He was a committed churchman. But his method of demythologizing the Bible because he thought that's what would be needed to keep the Bible relevant to modern life led him to the point that towards the end of his life, somebody asked him, they said, what can we know about Jesus? And he said, he lived and that's enough. (laughs) So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, you know, that's the next step for Andy Stanley. But what I am saying is that method, once you start to select parts of the Bible that fit parts of them that don't parts that make sense with modern sensibilities, part that don't, you've already lost the battle in my mind. Why not just defend the Bible from the beginning as the Word of God from the get-go? Right. And to be fair and kind of leave Andy Stanley behind, because this isn't about Andy Stanley, but I do want to thank him for making such sensational statements, because it's a great way to help clarify everybody's thinking. Yeah. But we would agree with him. I think that uh, the resurrection is the essence. As Paul himself said, is that if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we were talking about in infallibility. And now I'm expanding this and, and not trying to pick on Andy Stanley. But there is a certain element of sorting and sifting that is inherent in an infallibility position. It can be a little sorting and sifting. It can be a lot of sorting and sifting. And therein lies the slippery slope. So Mm -hmm. the positive of that, I think you are right on the nose, is that you're basically trying to keep the major things the major things. I think I completely agree with that sentiment. The problem comes in is it's very difficult to know how much to sort and sift and how much snipping and cutting to do. Yeah, the the major con, as as we've covered, if we're going to summarize it, is what do you bring in as the criterion that you're going to use to judge the Bible. So at some point, whether it's implicit or explicit, you're using some criterion. A lot of times it's your own sense of right and wrong or your own sense of what God is like 
that now you're going to impose on the Bible. Yes, and let me tell you another thing that's gaining a little bit of traction is the idea that uh, the Word of God is actually Jesus and the Bible, let me talk about the New Testament, is not our authority. We don't worship the New Testament, certainly agree with that. We worship Jesus Christ, and so we don't want to make a mistake there. And so when we read the words of the New Testament, they must be read through the lens or the eyes of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So we worship the person, not the text. I would agree with that. It gets into some difficulties, but that's a great example of taking this even a little bit further. That's a more slippery slope than it appears at first. Because the people that believe that would also say, think the Bible's inerrant, think it's inspired, think it's authoritative. Once again, you're really playing with words there because you think it's authoritative in a very different way. Mm -hmm. And what tends to happen, and I've seen this over and over again, and it's in, in my view, it's inevitable. If you're going to be intellectually honest, here's where you're going to get. My view of who Jesus is, is my controlling hermeneutic for the scripture. Mm-hmm. And that can be different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm uh, at some point maybe we'll talk about the Jesus hermeneutic. I think that'd be an interesting uh-huh. extension of this because it, it is this infallibleist position. It's nuanced yes. in the sense that there's a lot of different versions of it, and there's some legitimately good thinking going Absolutely. on. I mean, some yeah. some real like scholarly engagement. But at the same time, it, it falls prey to the exact con that we've been talking about. There's no way to do that without bringing a foreign lens to the Bible to decide what's important and what isn't, what what takes priority and what doesn't. And maybe at some point we'll get somebody on here and we'll talk and, and they can give us the fullest you know version of that position and we can discuss it um, because there are a lot of them out there. But I think the bottom line on that is that the worst tendency of the infallibleist position is to begin to pick and choose what parts of the Bible suit your fancy and which ones don't. And no one's going to say that, but that's effectively what it comes down to if we're going to be intellectually honest. But I, I do think you've done a good job pointing out the strength and the weakness of each of those, uh, each of those positions. Well, one of the things I always like to do on this is is catch up and see what you've been reading. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, sometimes the, being on the podcast, being live, is the only time we get to catch up on That's true. what each of us are reading. But I want to take the opportunity. You just got back from France. Yes. Happy 30th wedding anniversary. <laughs> and uh, I know you get to read some good things while you were on the trip. What's the, what's the best thing you read? Well, let's see. One of the things I read on the trip over is a book that you loaned to me so I wouldn't have to buy it, and it is a great biography of Emmanuel Macron. I thought, well, I'm going to France. I want to learn a little more about this guy, and mm-hmm. you had been telling me that you read a great story of his life. You know, his his life as an investment banker coming in from the business side. Yeah. Very well done. Oh, yeah. Just I, a I fascinating it. story. And I mean, obviously, I don't... I, it's hard to even talk about this on when it's international politics, but I don't really agree with most of what Macron thinks. I mean, right. Just philosophically, I'm I'm at odds with where he is. But what I do really like about him is the intrigue of number one, how he came to power. Yes. Extremely young, extremely conniving, kind of sold out Hollande <laughs> uh, to form his own party. Undoubtedly. Um, you know, I think that whole story is just is just really intriguing. But I'll tell you one thing I really respect about the guy is. 
he is kind of that old world style leader who has an appreciation for what comes with being the premier of a country. And, uh-huh. and where he really gets that is in art. So yeah. he understands that by being the leader of France, he has an effect on the world's appreciation and understanding of art. Mm-hmm. So he redecorated his office with you know French artists. And I read something about him. I can't remember if it was in that book or not. But when he came to Washington, D.C. for the first time, he sent his people ahead of time and they made contact ahead of time and they brought in like a dozen local artists Mm. from the Washington DC area. And they did a little expo for him for like a, you know, two or three hours in the morning. And he looked at all their art and then he talked about it with them and that kind of thing. And I just think for all of his other things, I mean, he's, he's, his approval ratings are as lower, lower than Trump's right now in France. (laughs) But you know, for all the things about him, one of the things that's really fascinating is he he's just a, a cultured guy. He, he is. is a real appreciation for the role he gets to play in culture and the arts. Right, and I, I think agree. that's pretty cool. Can I take a mild tangent, just jump on a soapbox for a second? That idea of art, you know, one of the things I do in my teaching is you'll see that I put a lot of medieval art, a lot of the, the Renaissance masters, because they they paint the most important things they knew. And most of the time, those are biblical scenes. Mm-hmm. They paint a lot of biblical scenes trying to express through the medium of art the power of what God has done. I sometimes think we miss that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so in our churches, we need to remember that God is the author of truth and beauty in all of its forms. And mm-hmm. there is beautiful art that is God-honoring, and I, I wish we had a little more appreciation. That You're talking about Macron made me think that. Mm-hmm. One other thing I read on this trip is we were we planned to go to Normandy, and we did, and it was very emotionally moving to me. And so in preparation for that, I was rereading the second volume of William Manchester's three-volume biography of Churchill. You know, he wrote mm-hmm. the first two volumes. The third volume, he'd completed all the research, but he died before he could actually write the words down. But the second volume covers the time period from 1931 to 1940, and it's called Alone. And Churchill is a great story of leadership of the only guy really in England who saw the Nazi menace and Mm -hmm. Hitler for who he really was. We don't appreciate how much people thought Hitler was a hero Mm -hmm. in England at that time. So that was powerful. (laughs) But then that leading up to, and I finished it before we went to Normandy, and there's just something about the whole weight of knowing the history behind that. Yeah, It was powerful to see so many young men willing to give their lives for what they believed was true and right. So it, that was another read I had. And you had made a statement to me a while back because I know you reread Manchester's. I tend to read Gilbert's uh, biography more often. And you said nobody really has the magisterial language of Manchester. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to go on record as saying you're right. <laughs> I'm glad we got that recorded. <laughs> um, you know, one of the best things I'm reading right now is Francis Fukuyama's new book on identity. Mm. So it's an examination of the root of identity politics. How did we get to the point where most of our politics is dictated around individual and group identities? And then his recommendation, which is kind of surprising. I would not have guessed this. His recommendation is uh, recultivating of national identity. So not Mm. nationalism. Of Uh course, last week we had President Trump say that he is a nationalist. Nationalist. Uh And I think they actually mean the same thing. I don't think Fukuyama would be caught dead 
agreeing with that statement. <laughs> you know, if he wants to keep his his job at Stanford, but I think they mean a similar thing, which is a transcendent identity of what it means to be American. So one right. of the things he's going to talk about in that book is what does it mean to assimilate into America? Right. Learning the language. I mean, right now to get into America legally, you have to take a test on American history. Right. You. I mean, a lot of those people know more than Civics, some citizens. History. You know yeah. about about right. how our constitution works and all of that. And and I thought that was an interesting way to talk about that. Is maybe the maybe the answer to the individual identity is to reinstill the group identity mm-hmm. of what it means to be American. And there's a lot of books on that topic right now. I did a rundown yesterday on our Patreon about that um, because this is a really hot topic. But as far as I've, as far as I've come across, this is one of the better, the better books. Um, last thing before we go, you're teaching through the book of Romans right now. Yeah. It's kind of the, the coup de grace of the new Testament. Oh, um, beautiful. Just amazing how much has been written on that. And by what quality of scholars. I mean, it, that is, you know, people, that are prominent New Testament scholars, that's usually their magnum opus. Right. Something on Romans or... So I just wanted to ask you, anything that you've read on that or anything that you've taught, fun things that you've discovered that don't make it into the lesson that you want to share about the book of Romans? Well, a lot of things don't make it into the lesson, of course. I will say this. I've identified 14 commentaries that I would use in this series, and most of it doesn't make its way in. It's my further education. Uh But let me mention a couple. If you're really interested in Romans, of course, you have the classics, which is Cranfield is the definitive work. But Cranfield has a large Cranfield that has a a lot of interaction with the Greek text. But there's a shorter, abridged Cranfield, small, well, maybe an inch and a half thick, uh, paperback, and I'd highly recommend it. It's still Mm -hmm. an authoritative work in the field. You know Karl Barth? did uh, a good work on Romans, very different perspective. It's not my main source, but it's a good source. If you like N.T. Wright, and I like the sweep of his ideas, even when I disagree with them, he wrote in the Interpreter's Bible commentary series, he wrote the the uh, commentary on Romans, and I found it to be very typically N.T. Wright, very typically powerful. Tim Keller wrote a two-volume called Romans for You, and it's very typically Keller, very insightful, mm-hmm. and very true to the text, not as sweeping in ideas as N.T. Wright. He just, Keller tends to want to stay a little more anchored in the text, but it, typical Tim Keller insights. There's a, it's a very good commentary. And then one that you and I have been waiting for is in the Baker Exegetical series, commentary series. Tom Schreiner just revised uh, his commentary on Romans, and it arrived in time for me to use it for the last three lessons. Mm-hmm. It's also very good, very academic. Tom Schreiner, pretty much anything by Tom Schreiner is going to be great New Testament work. Yeah, everything of his is good. I've, I've enjoyed getting to open that a little bit. I wish it had come out before your series, but oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and is it kind of an update on 20 years of scholarship since his first edition but right yeah that's a great list and and really good stuff if you were if you're just reading along in the bible and you want something more what's your pick something oh than the text you mean Mm -hmm. to add to the text well for just a low budget can i just put a plug in for two things we talk about a lot the esv study bible is a really good study Bible. And mm-hmm. I don't say that out of any sense of ESV bigotry or whatever. We're it's not sponsored by them. a good... Yet. Yet. Yeah. Yet. A crossway, if you're listening... For the, for the 10 yeah. year, I think we probably... <laughs> it's been 10 years since the ESV study Bible came out, and I tell you what, it has revolutionized 
the entire world of study Bibles. Yeah, I mean, it's and again, good. I'm not talking so much about the ESV translation. That I'm not a bigot about that, but it's just great scholarship. And its commentary is conservative, true to the text. The Gospel Transformation Bible, which you turned me on to a few years ago, I had not seen it until you had showed it to me, is basically picks up the themes. The reason I've mentioned those two, it's another study Bible, but Mm -hmm. it's not trying to just interpret every verse. It's trying to give you some big themes. The reason I mention that is those don't cost very much money, Mm -hmm. and you don't have to read 20 pages on every verse. Uh, So I like those. For the average person, I'd probably pick up Tim Keller's two-volume, Romans for You. Mm -hmm. I think for the average person, that's just really going to add insights into it. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.